I want to thank you for joining into our Bible study this evening, and I want to encourage you to have your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians and chapter 1. The Apostle Paul at this moment in time is no doubt dealing with a crisis, a ministerial crisis. In his book, Profiles of Courage, Kennedy wrote, Great crises produce great men and great deeds of courage. That's a pretty great statement, and it's true. But not only do they produce great men, the reality is hard times reveal what is already there inside of a man or a woman. And up to this point in this very heartfelt and emotional and passionate and personal letter, the Apostle Paul's been sharing his heart with the Corinthians about the trials that he has been enduring. He's been severely criticized by some that are there in the church at Corinth. There's been some opposition as to even his apostleship, which he has validated and cleared up. He's already told them about the trouble that he endured in Asia to the point that he despaired even of life. It's a fact that the higher demands on spiritual leaders actually do exist. It's also a reality that maybe a position with that kind of profile within the church can leave an individual, an individual vulnerable to insinuations or to criticisms or to some kind of accusation by people especially people who have a mind to oppose the leadership that is there in place. And let's be honest, people can be tough. We're going to sense that here this evening as we study together. So what Paul has done is he sent his first letter to the church at Corinth, and he won back, I would say, the majority of the church. But the reality is there remained a really harshly judgmental group within the church that was still considering the Apostle Paul to be deceptive. They were still criticizing him. And so Paul is now going to answer in his own defense. But this isn't going to feel like a back-and-forth argument. I think it will be very instructive for us to understand how we can live a life that limits our vulnerability to these kinds of insinuations and attacks. Listen as Paul gives a word in his defense, beginning in verse 12. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world. And more abundantly to you, word, for we write none other things unto you than what ye read or acknowledge, and I trust ye shall acknowledge even to the end. Also ye have acknowledged us in part that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, I told you that's not going to sound like an argumentative tone. But what he has just articulated there is a word of defense in his own stead. 
And I think maybe you can pick up on the nature of those words. He's under strong criticism, and in a way, he is clearing his name. I don't think the whole church is against him, but there is a segment that is against him. What exactly did the Apostle Paul do to provoke this hostility from within the church at Corinth? In short, he had made a change of plans. That's really not it. There's a carnal spirit that existed within those people, and this was a handle for them to use. Now, originally, when the churches of Corinth and Ephesus were relatively established and stable, he had written that he had a travel plan. He was going to go from Asia to Macedonia to Achaia and then to Judea. But after having written 1 Corinthians, he had to make an unscheduled visit in heaviness, he told us, in chapter 2 and verse 1, to Corinth during which he said that he would return to them before he went to Macedonia. He said this in verses 15 and 16, In this confidence I was minded to come unto you before, that you might have a second benefit, and to pass by you into Macedonia, and to come again out of Macedonia unto you, and of you to be brought on my way toward Judea. So he's articulating them his travel plans to them. But instead of coming back to them immediately, he wrote a letter and he reverted to his original plan, which was from Macedonia then to Achaia. He says this in verse 23, Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul that to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth. There was a reason I did not come unto Corinth. I did it to spare you. So he's changed his travel plans, and it's evident that he's under attack and criticism for doing so because he's spending so much scriptural real estate clearing it up. And the criticism goes further than that. There in verse 12, questioning his conduct in the world, his relations to them. In verse 12, they're questioning his sincerity. They're questioning his wisdom. By the time we read verse 13, they're alleging that what he had written to them was even difficult to understand. In verse 17, they're basically saying he's double-minded, that for him to say yes and no in the same breath was acceptable. In verse 17, when I therefore was thus minded, did I use lightness? Or the things that I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh that with me there should be yea, yea, and nay, nay? You can hear the word, the nature, the tone of defense. It's clear that he's under attack, and it is clear that he is responding. And I want to just work through these verses to help us learn the elements of a great defense. The elements of a great defense when we are under attack, when we are being falsely accused, when we are being criticized, when we're being misunderstood. And the reality is it's not going to be about who can yell the loudest, who can be the meanest, or who can flex the biggest muscle. He's going to lay out for us a roadmap when under attack. And the first thing that he is going to speak to is the testimony of conscience. The testimony of conscience. Our English word conscience comes from two Latin words. Come meaning with and seer meaning to know. So 
conscience is that inner faculty that knows with our spirit and approves when we do right, but accuses when we do wrong. It knows with our spirit. Paul used the word conscience a lot in his writings, a lot in his preaching, 23 times in his letters, in fact, and spoke in ministry in Acts. In fact, he said this in Acts 24, 16, Herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. This is the aim of my life, to have a clear conscience. For my conscience to approve of my spirit and my actions. He told them in the last letter that he would winter with them if the Lord permit. Now he's still covering these travel plans, but listen to what he writes them in verses 5, 6, and 7 of 1 Corinthians 16. Now I will come unto you when I shall pass through Macedonia. For I do pass through Macedonia. And it may be that I will abide, yea, and winter with you, that ye may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. For I will not see you now, by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you. If you have your open Bible, make note of this phrase. If you don't focus on this, he says, if the Lord permit. The plans that he made had to change. He informed the church about his change of plans, but this still does not silence the opposition because truthfully, the opposition was not merely about the change of plans. It was born of a carnal heart wanting to attack the apostle Paul. Paul, you're using fleshly wisdom. Paul, you're double-minded. You're careless with the will of God. I can't believe you would talk like that. Did I use lightness? He says, was I flippant? Was I careless? Was I making plans just to please myself? No, the answer, of course, is no. No, Paul, you're double-minded. If you say one thing, you mean another, and you don't really care. They misunderstood him intentionally. He's under attack. He's being criticized. And misunderstandings among God's people, and they're often difficult things to untangle, and wounds can certainly go deep. One misunderstanding can lead to another. One criticism can breed another criticism. One false accusation can open the door to all kinds of problems. But no matter what his accusers might say, Paul did not flex the bigger muscle. He did not shout in a louder voice. He did not sling mud back at them. He stood firm because he had a clear conscience. He could literally even point back to the letter and say, I told you my plans were changing. I even put in there the clause, if the Lord permit. I mean, I knew these plans could change. God's will can take me to another place that's what he's trying to say to them. I have heard said, there's no softer pillow on which to sleep than a clear conscience. One of the elements of defense when under attack is the testimony of a clear conscience. Paul had that. But not only that, he had the testimony of personal holiness. Paul lived a life of simplicity. That word is used there in the segment that we read, simplicity means singleness of mind. A mind set upon God and being unmoved. It's the opposite, literally the opposite of being double-minded. 
It carries the idea of being not distracted, not turned aside, literally simplicity, singleness. As I studied, one Greek scholar said the word means without double-mindedness. It means plain-heartedness. It means integrity. It stands opposed to double dealings, to deceitful appearances, to crafty plans to accomplish an object. It is about being candid, open, frank, honest, and fair in your dealings. What this would have meant when Paul says simplicity is I lived a life of holiness, not of filth, not duplicitous, not of uncleanness. He's going to testify again in chapter 2, referencing living a life of sincerity in the sight of God. Pick up on this in chapter 2 and verse 17. He says, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, we speak Christ. Of sincerity, unmingled honesty, simplicity of aim, no trickery, in the sight of God. He's saying, I'm living my life with the awareness that God is watching me. He'll expand on this in his letter to the church at Ephesus. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Here again, we have the word singleness without double-mindedness. Not merely with eye service, transforming the external, but not having it match what's going on on the inside. A sincere desire to make the interests of the Lord Jesus what is his first consideration. It is literally simplicity, holiness. The fact is, that is an incredible defense, personal holiness. I have lived with simplicity. There's been single-mindedness. There's not been any false pretense about my ministry. I've not been tainted with filth or uncleanness. I have lived my life as though God was watching me because I know he is. One of the greatest elements of defense that we have when we are being criticized or falsely accused or misunderstood when we're under attack is the testimony of a clear conscience, the testimony of personal holiness, and the testimony of godly sincerity. Now all of these words he's using in verse 12. Sincerity in the Greek, again, it implies something visual that helps us to understand this a little bit. There's no mixture of any foreign element within this. No sinister nor selfish aim as some had insinuated in failing to visit them. It is the idea of what you see is what you get. Sincerity. What you see is what you get. Simplicity without filth. Righteous. Knowing that God is watching. Action on the outside matches motive on the inside. Not about eye service. Sincerity. No mixed elements in here. What you see is what you get. That's what that phrase implies. All that I've done, I have done out in the open. My aims have been made transparent. Literally, it carries the idea as, of, as if I've done this in the bright sunshine. 
I've not tried to tell you that I'd pass through. I've not tried to take money from you. I've not tried to manipulate anybody emotionally. I have been wide open and transparent. What you see is what you get. The world is disingenuous. But Paul's saying, that's not me. I am sincere. Listen to this example that he will use to declare his sincerity. Here in chapter 1, notice verse 17. When I therefore was thus minded, did I use lightness? Or the things that I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, that with me there should be yea, yea, and nay, nay? But as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. There was no double-mindedness. Why? For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him, amen, under the glory of God by us. In effect, what Paul is doing is he is saying, I was amongst you with integrity, Christ's integrity was my integrity. So aligned was my life with Christ's that I lean upon his integrity. One said this of that very phrase, nothing could be more dissonant and logically contradictory than to accuse the Apostle Paul, whose whole being was dedicated to preaching Christ, of playing with the truth. Paul's behavior was centered upon and in the character and actions of Jesus Christ. His whole life was about the truth. His whole life was about proclaiming the truth. What he is saying to them is, this is my sincerity. What you see is what you get. My yea is yea and my nay is nay because in Christ is yea. He's the great affirmative. He is the great truth. That's how I live my life according to that truth. Even as he concludes that verse segment, he's saying in effect, if you say amen to the truth about Christ, then you better live a life of radical truth. And that's what Paul's saying he's done. He's not asking them to validate that he's done it. He's telling them that he has done it. He knows on the inside that he has lived a life of godly sincerity. Man, this still works. This level of transparency with people, be who you say you are, let the inside match the outside, live a life of truth. Man, we live in a dishonest world. We live in an age of deception. The devil is the father of lies. We follow Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. The fact is, we're never more like Christ than when we adhere to the truth, and when we speak the truth, and we tell the truth, and we live the truth. That's what Paul's saying. He is listing uh, the elements of an effective defense when you're being criticized, when you're being falsely accused. When you are being misunderstood, he even writes this in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 23. Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul. God, you take note of me. Judge me on the inside, David used to say, which seems so audacious. I'm walking in my integrity. Search me, God. 
Show me if there's any wicked way in me. That is an open and honest and transparent and humble way to live. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, it's clear in these verses that the Apostle Paul is under attack. It's not fair. It's clear in these verses that his motives are being questioned. It's not fair. Now, again, I reiterate, they were attacking him for what was a change of plans. But I believe the heart was genuinely carnal. It was an anti-Christ mentality that had crept in. There was a segment of people that were using this to attack Paul, to try to assert their own influence. And it wounded him. It wounded him. You'll note in these verses as we work through this that when he sends this letter, he's waiting to hear how this letter is being received. It's tearing him up on the inside. He has no rest in his soul that they are questioning him like they're questioning him because he knows the truth. And rather than merely thunder down with apostolic authority, Rather than beginning a name-calling game that could get dirty, rather than comparing and contrasting what he had done with what they had done, instead he teaches us what his greatest defense actually is. Not shouting louder, not flexing the biggest muscle, have a clear conscience, live a life of personal holiness, live a transparent and sincere existence. What you see is what you get. Against those arguments, there is no answer. I began by stating great crises produce great men and great deeds of courage. Certainly that's true. But moments like this also reveal what a person is made of. And Paul's being revealed. His guts and effect are being shown. And he's not wrong. Nothing can stand against the argument of a clear conscience, a holy life, sincerely lived. You know, we are often finding ourselves in a world where we're under attack. Our belief system is under attack. We feel and we are the minority as adherents to the truth but that our good not be evil spoken of and that we not blaspheme the name of the Lord Jesus Christ with a life lived poorly or in sin. Here's our greatest defense. And even within the body, it's inevitable. Criticism, misunderstanding, false accusations, it can, it can spread like wildfire. And we want to defend and validate and vindicate and play a dirty game of name calling and comparison and Paul just says, nah, have a clear conscience, live a holy life, and be sincere. That is the way to bear up under this kind of attack. Take some humility, take some spiritual maturity, and God can help us do just that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you now for what we've learned. Help us, Lord, to meditate upon this. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be meek, to be more like Christ in this regard. Help us to extend grace to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. 
If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week. <laughs>